If you would turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to continue our consideration of this great letter together. And what a fitting letter and study it is this Christmas season, because it's all about Jesus. Uh, For two chapters now, uh, we have been considering Christ and his value and the benefits that flow to us because of what he has done for us. The testimony of these verses has been and will continue to be that Jesus is enough. In fact, that only Jesus will do, that only in Christ are the longings of our hearts and the deepest needs of our souls satisfied, that if we long for salvation, it will only come by Christ, that if we long for unity and faith, it will only come by Christ, if we long for joy and hope and perseverance, that those Things will only be found in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let us look to him in this Christmas season. Let us be thankful for him. Let us be mindful of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 this morning. As the author is going to continue to build, uh, the arguments in this letter are very connected. They, They build on one another so as to continue to substantiate the claims that he has made. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 together. And before we read, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word that you have given. For it is your word that teaches us about Christ our Lord. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ you've given for us that we might be saved, that we might be called out, that we might be made righteous that we might be brought into eternity with you. So God, teach us this morning from these verses about the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. These verses are designed to encourage our faith. They're designed to help us persevere in our Trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of chapter 3 in general, and particularly of verses 1 through 6, Dr. Kent Hughes said this, It is difficult for those unfamiliar with Jewish history to appreciate the awesome reverence accorded Moses by his people. 
But Moses was revered as the greatest of all Hebrews and indeed the greatest man of history. We must understand this if first we are to get anything of the Holy Spirit's message to us from Hebrews chapter 3. He goes on to defend that sort of basic assertion that if we're going to understand what God's doing here by making this comparison of the greater Jesus to the lesser Moses, much like he's done with all the previous revelations we saw that at the beginning of chapter 1, and even to the angels who are not sons in chapter 1 and even down into chapter 2, the superior Jesus now is being compared over against Moses. His point is that if we have any hope of understanding what God is doing through this word, then we have to try to grasp the significance of Moses for the Hebrew people and to understand and to see Moses in light of how they would have done that. He goes on to justify this statement by giving six reasons for their high esteem of Moses. I'm not going to give you all of them, but he he mentions things like the fact that Moses had been divinely chosen by God and divinely preserved to perform his duty that God had called him to perform. You, you remember how Moses was uh, in, under the curse of death uh, and, and put in the basket and preserved by God as he floats down a river and is found in God's providence by the Pharaoh's daughter and is raised in the house of Egypt. Just an unbelievable, miraculous story about God's provision. And so because he had been divinely chosen and appointed for his epic task of delivering God's people and then divinely preserved and protected in order that he would do it. He points to some other things like how Moses' deliverances of God's people came through uh, unparalleled displays of divine power. These things would have been profoundly, uh, would would have profoundly impacted the minds and the thoughts of the Hebrew people that experienced it and who descended from those that experienced it firsthand. These would have been stories they told again and again and again, and would have given Moses a very particular place of authority and reverence in their life. He mentions how uh, Moses, in serving in his office as prophet for God's people, was unique from any of the other prophets that received his revelation and word from God in an indirect way. Where Moses actually, on a couple of occasions, was taken up on the mountain to meet with God face to face, such that his face glowed with the radiance of the glory of God. You remember that in the story. So that he was prophet uniquely in that he received the words that God gave and the law that he intended Moses to give to his people in a face to face manner. Then he points to some other things like how as their leader, uh, he was used by God to author the law, to write the first five books of the word of God, the Pentateuch. And the significance of those books in the lives of the Hebrew people cannot be uh, understated. So he concludes by stating in summary, he says, and I quote, to all the Jews, Moses was simply the greatest. And he's not speaking sort of trivially there, and he's not using hyperbole. He literally, the greatest among men in the minds of the Hebrew people. There is historical evidence that even in some early traditions, that Moses was ascribed a higher place and reverence than even ministering angels. 
I'm sharing this with you so that you can begin to see in a way that we don't how the Hebrew people would have viewed Moses. And so it is significant then when you see in verse 3 here, comes sort of glaring right down to us, that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That would have been a bombshell for these people. You can also see, if you're wondering um, why the author would have such concern to compare Jesus, God Almighty in the flesh, to any man, particularly or individually, why he would have had this desire or felt the need to compare Jesus to Moses for these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians. Because one of the traditions and one of the things that they may, in the midst of struggle and difficulty, that they may have been tempted to believe would have been that, well, if Jesus and this gospel by Jesus and this salvation by Jesus, this religion of Jesus can't do all of these things, maybe I can go back to Moses and trust in the great and mighty Moses and he can do for me what maybe Jesus has not Done, And so that would have been a very real temptation for these Christians. And so I think the author here is right on target in dealing with this reality. Now the question is, what, is he, what does he actually say to us? Well, first of all, he begins in chapter 3, the first couple of verses, with uh, sort of an exhortation. Before he just comes right down to help them see... Essentially, that Jesus can do for them what Moses could not and did not and would not ever do. He wants to appeal to the truth that he has already been articulating, particularly at the end of chapter 2, with regard to our union with Christ as a brother. Okay, And look at what he says, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, that is based on all that I have just said, but then he gives these... These qualifying remarks. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The exhortation then is that they would consider Jesus. That they would set their mind on Christ, not on Moses. That in whatever struggle they face, that they would look to Jesus that they would see the beauty and the value and the worth of Jesus Christ above all else. It's very interesting as we're confronted right off the bat here with the significance of our thought life. This is something that we've considered a few times together. I think even back to Philippians chapter 4, I'll make reference to that in just a moment, we'll look at it again, where we saw this same reality, how important it is to, 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 to protect and to... Um, and, and to sort of filter the things that we think about and to be sure that we're on top of the things that fill our minds because of the impact that that has on our life. And he begins by telling them, you need to consider Jesus Christ. You need to set your mind on Jesus Christ. If you go to places, places like Colossians chapter 3, turn back just a few verses in your New Testament, a few books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, listen to the exhortation here. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Then what does he say? 
Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Because for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So as a result of what has been accomplished for us in Christ, one of the imperative commands we must seek to follow is to set our mind on certain things. Why? Because what we fill our minds with is going to have a great impact on what we do with our lives. In, in many ways, we are and we do that what we think about. In many ways, we are greatly influenced by the things that we in, enjoy and entertain in our thought life. You know, if you don't want to long for something, don't think about it. Don't meditate on it. Don't consider it. Because I can promise you, if you're always going by that car lot and staring at that pretty new car that you've been longing for or that pretty new boat that you've been longing for and you, you know, drive this way to work instead of that so that you can go by and see it every day and think about it every day. The one thing you can be sure of, whether or not you ever attain the car that you long for, you will be filled with desire for it. Because not, not because you've seen it, but because you continue to set your mind on it. You continue to fill your mind with it. If you don't want to long for the car, just put it out of your mind. Don't go look at it. Don't go stare at it. Don't go think about it. Don't go think about how nice those leather seats would be with the heaters and whatever else it has. And don't, don't set your mind on it. Don't consider it. See, we're greatly impacted by our thought life. That's why the testimony of the word of God is that we are to set our mind on the things that are above. Right? That we are to be renewed in our minds as well as our spirits. It's part of the renewal of our bodies in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that our souls are made new, but our minds are made new by the renewing of our minds. We have to, we have to be careful about the things that we entertain our minds. Turn back just another page or two, depending on your Bible and how it's laid out, to Philippians chapter 4. Look at the exhortation down at the end of Philippians chapter 4 that we would have just studied not too many months ago. Beginning in verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about them. Why? Because the only way to express them in your life is to dwell upon them, to meditate on them, to give consideration to them. Not only to them, but to the benefits that they bring to you, to the glory that they bring to God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Well, that's in part what he's saying here in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. What is it that he wants us to think about, though? I think we have to be as specific as we can. First... He wants us to think about who we are because of Christ. First, he wants us to remember the things that he said. Remember, he says, therefore, based on my argumentation that we've been united with Christ as brothers, consider Jesus. In part, consider what we now are and who we now are because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. First, holy brothers. These are not just um, qualifi- qualifying language, you know, words here that don't mean anything. 
these are not simply adjectives for the sake of uh, eloquent or lengthy writing. These are here for a reason. (coughs) Why is he calling them and referring to them as holy brothers and those that partake or share in a heavenly calling? Because he wants them to remember who they are in Christ. Consider Jesus and in part consider what Jesus has done for you. Consider who you have now become in Christ Jesus your Lord. That's what he's been arguing for at the end of chapter 2 about our brotherhood with Christ. First, he wants them to remember that they are by Christ made holy. What is it that God came to do in Christ? Not just to, you know, correct our bad behavior. Not just to fix our problems. Not just to, you know, uh, bring about temporal blessings. The preeminent concern of God in sending Jesus Christ for sinners is that they would be brought from darkness to light, that they would be sanctified, have their sins cleansed and removed from them so that he might present them to himself as a beautiful and glorious bride, right? It is that they would be made holy. The verse that I, the verse that I commend to you time and again from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for God made Jesus to become sin so that in Christ Jesus, the people that are sinners would be made righteous. That in Christ, we would enjoy the righteousness of God. We're given an alien righteousness. And he's saying, remember who you are. You are now holy brothers. Because you've been united with Christ, who is now being made perfect in his capacity as our great high priest and considers us brothers by way of the incarnation taking on flesh. And in considering Jesus, remember that through this, he has made you holy. You know, this is not unlike what we see often in professional athletes. A game starts and one of the best players on the field is not playing. And he's there. He's on the sideline. He's got his pads on, but no helmet. And he sits out a play or he sits out a series Or maybe he dresses and sits for a game. And we don't know what he's done. But all we're told is that he's being disciplined for conduct detrimental to the team. What does that mean? That means that however loose it may be. I don't know how they decide what is conduct detrimental to the team. Uh, I, I have no idea. But what it means is that someone sets a standard a code of conduct, an expectation for those that call themselves giants or 49ers or Dallas Cowboys. And if you're a Dallas Cowboy and you're afforded the privileges of being a Dallas Cowboy, then there is a certain code of conduct that you must adhere to. And when you step outside of that code of conduct, when you Conduct that's unbecoming of a team member, of whatever team that is, detrimental to the team or unbecoming of the team. When you step outside that code of conduct, then you have acted in a way that at least the team and the officials of that team have deemed unworthy to be considered part of the team. Perhaps maybe a better analogy is if, like me, you ever had a father who in your uh, erring childhood told you that you weren't to do something and explained to you how you had done something wrong. And in your 
questioning his reasoning as to why this was wrong and why you can't do this, as I was told, because you're a Safley and because Safleys don't act that way. What does he mean? It, it means that we have certain identities that come with certain privileges that are brought about by certain realities. And, and that identity has a certain code or conduct or character. Do you see what he's saying here? Remember who you are. We now have an identity in Christ that supersedes all of our human identities as father, as husband, as son, as friend, as doctor or lawyer or painter or whatever we do, that that all of those identities are now under the singular and most important identity of our lives and of our hearts, that we are now brothers with Jesus Christ. We are now children of God and heirs of the promised blessings that flow to us through the gospel. And he says, therefore, holy brothers, consider Jesus, considers what what he's done. Look, you who share in a heavenly calling, because we have been made brothers with Christ, because we have been made holy and set apart, we now are by Christ and through him able to partake. We share in this heavenly calling. We share in the benefits of God's calling to us through Christ and the blessings that flow to him. We are called for uh, something miraculous and spectacular. I mean, you realize that the calling for the Christian who's been bound with Jesus is the call out of the darkness and into the light, something that we would not otherwise be able to do. We are now called to be the saints of God. We are now called to be the proclaimers of his holy, inerrant, written word and truth and self-revelation. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to be beacons of hope in a world of hopelessness and darkness. What a high calling that is. And it is only because of Jesus that that calling in us exists and that we are made able to partake of this heavenly calling. He says, consider Jesus. First, he wants us to think about who we are. But he goes on after this, consider Jesus, to now give us some things about Christ. Not only does he want us to think about who we are in Christ, he wants us to think about how this has come to be. Notice that he says, consider Jesus, not Moses. And then at the very end of this opening statement, at the beginning of verse 3, he clarifies that this Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. See, he's setting up the comparison here. How is it that we are made holy brothers? How is it that we are made partakers of this heavenly calling? How is it? That all of these benefits now are ours. It is not through Moses. That's an important reality. None of us may be tempted to trust in Moses for those things, friends. But these Christians probably were. But you know, if it's not Moses, we're all tempted to, to look somewhere. Somewhere or to something to make us right. To, to, to resolve the problem of our sin. To bring us into eternity. We, we, we all are tempted to look somewhere else. And so don't, don't think just because, well, I'm not, I'm not 
tempted to look to Moses. That don't, don't begin to think that he's not talking to you. How is it he wants us to understand that these benefits are ours? He's very clear. Consider Jesus. Friends, how often do you think about Christ? We think about the things that we want. We think about our friends and family quite often. We think about the stresses that flow in our life on a day-to-day basis. We think about our jobs and how we can perform them well. We think about our children and the struggles that they may face. We think about our finances and how we can maximize them or use them for our benefit and gain. We think about a myriad of things on a daily basis. How often do we consider Jesus Christ? How often do we fix our eyes on him? Seek to behold his glory, to to, to be amazed at his beauty. How how often do we stare and be amazed at at and by Jesus Christ our Lord? I don't know. For, For me, it's not nearly enough. How often do we think about what Christ has done? How often do we think about heaven? Our home, where we will dwell for eternity with our brother. And the joy and the bliss, the perfection that will exist there. How often do we think about Christ? How often do we think about heaven, where we will be with him? How often do we think about these things? He is telling them to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Not only does he want us to think about how this these realities have come to be in our life, how we have become what we now are. I love the last portion of this opening statement. He wants us to think about what Jesus continues to do. See, there is, there is some temptation, I think, for us to be thankful for what Christ has done, where then we give very little consideration to what Christ continues to do. And friends, there is great hope and value in considering Jesus in terms of the offices that he continues to fulfill on our behalf. Notice what he says. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he fulfills this office by the appointment of God with ab- excuse me with absolute and complete perfection and faithfulness what is that office and these offices continue well it is one he says he is the apostle of our confession our confession to believe this truth this gospel uh, confession that we make in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his sufficiency what does it mean that he's the apostle of our confession an apostle is someone who is sent to another. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is our greatest apostle. He's an apostle unlike Paul, unlike Peter, unlike James and John. He has been sent by God to come to us. And then as the apostle perfected in capacity by way of his humanity and humiliation, he then returns as our apostle To go to God. Look what happens. He is the apostle of our confession. That is the one that God sends to us. And the high priest of our confession. That is that he now returns to God. Representing us and on our behalf. So Jesus then is the one that proceeds from God. 
to us, speaks to us from God and represents God to us, then in turn returns to God before his presence and magnificence and glory, representing us to God and interceding, speaking to God for us and on our behalf and mediating between us and the wrath of God against our sin. Do you see the completion there? What a beautiful picture of the office of Christ. And friends, that is not an office that is only something that happened long ago. It's not just when Jesus was born. It's not just when Jesus died. It's not just when Jesus ascended. It is the continuing office of Jesus Christ. He is the one that continues to come to us through the word and spirit. And he is the one that continues to go before God on our behalf and to intercede for us. He is our greatest apostle and he is the high priest, the great high priest of our faith. How wonderful, how wonderful to know that this Jesus who now calls us brother, this Jesus who makes us holy, this Jesus who brings us into salvation and reconciliation with God, this Jesus continues to do for us what we could never otherwise do for ourselves. He pleads our case before God Almighty. He brings about the work of the Spirit in our hearts. He intercedes and prays for us when we cannot do so for ourselves. He represents us, his brothers, before the throne of God. Friends, set your mind on Jesus, he says. Consider Jesus Christ, what you have become in him, and what he continues to do to keep that reality sure. Now, secondly... In commanding them to set their mind on Jesus, to consider Jesus, he wants them and us to do two other things. Very briefly, I want us to consider them together in this passage and then we'll, we'll close. By setting their minds on Christ, he wants them, first of all, to ascribe unto Jesus the glory that he alone is due. Now remember, there's being a comparison made between the greater and the lesser. Jesus being the greater, Moses being the lesser. The point here is not to defame Moses in any way. Moses was great. Moses was God's man for God's people for an extended period of redemptive history. Moses experienced God in a way that no man ever has. Moses, I mean, the point is not to devalue or to defame Moses either in his person or his office. It is simply to exalt Jesus as that which is incomparable to any man and greater to all men. And the point then is not to diminish Moses and the value that they found in him. It is to maximize and to exalt the value of Jesus Christ for these people so that they would ascribe to him the glory that he alone is due. Friends, it is idolatry to look to Moses to do what Jesus has promised to do. It is idolatry to ascribe unto Moses or anyone or anything else the glory that Jesus deserves. When we give anything that type of place in our life, we profane God. And we diminish the value and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Right after he proclaims that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, he goes on to explain. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more, than, more honor than the house itself. And parenthetically, he says, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses 
was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, the difference here that's being made is that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because he enjoys a different office by God's design. Moses was merely a servant. In the analogy of the house and the builder, the house is significant, but not nearly as significant as the builder who built it. He is not, the house may be worthy of praise, but not nearly as much as the builder who built it. He is not that which is built, Jesus, as Moses was built by God, but Jesus, being God Almighty, is the builder himself. Do you see? That's the analogy that's being made there. Uh, Likewise, he goes on to say that he enjoys the office not as a servant only. Jesus certainly was the servant of God as he came to do all of the will of his Father, and he did so perfectly. But he serves as a son, and not any son, but as the only begotten Son of God. Moses could not claim that title. Moses did not have that kind of access to God. Moses did not share in likeness and in nature. They were not of the same essence, Moses and God. But all of those things are true of Jesus. The result of that, being a son and not a servant, being the builder, not the building, is it means then that Jesus, by way of his office and access and nature, can do what Moses cannot do for sinners and has done what Moses did not do for sinners. Now, that's very important because as great as Moses was, did he accomplish everything that he was supposed to accomplish? No. Moses endured the judgment of God against sin. When we get later next week into the other parts of chapter 3, we're going to begin to see, you can peer over there now, look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Was Moses able to perfectly lead God's people into God's rest? No. Moses himself was not even afforded the opportunity because of his own sin to enter into the promised land, which was a picture and a temporal promise, fulfillment of the rest, the eternal rest that God had promised for his people. But friends, in Jesus, everything changes. Because as a son and as the builder who then serves the father, he does so perfectly. That is perfectly without sin. He is able to lead God's people perfectly into the rest that God has promised. In fact, that rest is instituted and accomplished and established by Jesus Christ himself. Friends, when we stand back and when we realize that whatever benefit that other people, pastors, elders, friends, parents, you know, those that we look up to, whatever benefit they can bring to us, they cannot ever do what Jesus can. No matter what, what historical figure, whether it's Moses, some angel, when we begin to realize that we have needs in our souls and in our life that only Jesus can satisfy, then we are brought to a place of exaltation of Christ alone. 
Remember what Paul said. I seek to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Friends, He becomes our greatest treasure. He becomes the thing of greatest value in our lives. He becomes the deepest need of our daily walk. More than I need to talk to my spouse. More than I need to accomplish this job. More than I need to see this person. More than I need to take this drink or eat this food. More than anything we need. When we begin to see Jesus like this... Jesus is the main thing that we need. The most preeminent and superior need in our life is Christ. And when that is so, he is receiving more and more and more glory. He is encouraging these Christians not only to look to Jesus, but to look to Jesus so that they might rightly ascribe to him glory. Friends, I preached a wedding yesterday. As many of you know, many of you were here. And as some of you pointed out, I didn't say a whole lot. I didn't feel like I needed to. But if you were there, then the one, you'll know the, the one thing that I did try to really hammer home for Cameron and Lauren is that your life exists, whether it's individually or together, for the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you get that? Everything about your life is for the glory of Jesus. The proclamation of his gospel the exaltation of his fame, the magnification of his name, the splendor of his glory. Everything about us, we were created for God's glory. We were saved for God's glory. We are preserved for God's glory. We are blessed for God's glory. Everything we have is for God's glory. And it is only when we begin to see the value of Christ in these terms, to consider Jesus like this, that God is most glorified in us and Christ is most exalted in us. Friends, let us consider Jesus. And in doing so, let us ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. Finally and lastly, look at what he says. Not only are we to ascribe to him more glory than Moses and anyone else because of the office that he performs and the functions that are sustained by it. Look at what it says in verse 6. But Christ is, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You know one thing that he wants to happen for these Christians in considering Jesus like this? In the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of persecution and oppression, in the midst of great difficulty and temptation, he wants them to hold fast to Jesus, to persevere in their hope in him and in him only, not to fall away. And I love what a lot of, I I read several uh, men's uh, comments about this verse particularly, and so many people want to see this as a discouragement, like, Oh, I'm I'm scared that I might lose confidence and lose boasting. And what does that mean? And is he saying I'm going to lose my salvation? No. Friends, the purpose of this verse, as, as others have pointed out, is not to be a discouragement, but an encouragement. He's saying, behold Christ in all of his beauty and in all of the benefits that flow to you so that you will be encouraged to continue to hold on to him. The good news is that even when we let go, Jesus is holding on to us. But friends, it does not give us an excuse to to, to trample on that grace. Friends, let us set our minds on Christ that we might also set our affections on him. That's what he's saying. 
You say, well, I'm losing hope. I don't have the same kind of confidence in Jesus that I once did. I promise you, at least in part, that diminished hope and confidence is caused by diminished thinking about the person and work of Jesus. Fill your mind with Jesus and your heart will overflow with hope in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for Christ who you gave for us. We thank you for the benefits that flow to us uh, through him and the salvation that we enjoy by him. We thank you for the fellowship as brothers that we have with him. And we pray that you would help us to think deeply about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession and faith. God, we pray that you would help us to consider him moment by moment and day by day. God, and as our minds are filled with Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be full of confidence, that we would hold fast to the hope that we have in him and that we would not fall away. God, don't let us go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.